0: Hello, this is Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. Welcome to this subscriber show where we're rounding up the consequences of the European parliamentary elections. Uh, We're not a news service at Alpha Bunga Bunga. We don't normally go in for the sort of immediate response to current events type of shows. You can get that elsewhere. But we did think we would do one this time because the European parliamentary elections, the results of which... Uh, started coming out last night and have been filtering through today. These are the first European parliamentary elections to happen firstly in the midst of Brexit. And in fact, they're the first ones since the Greek bailout referendum in 2015 and the Brexit vote itself. And also you could add in various other quite important European political events that have happened in the interim. The Italian populist coalition, the emergence of the Gilets Jaunes, uh, Macron as well in France... And turnout is up, and quite a bit in some places, so maybe it is kind of interesting to discuss. You've also got the phenomenon that basically everyone, and this this is especially the case in Britain, that everyone's claiming either an absolute or a relative victory, which can't possibly be true all at the same time. There are obviously far more losers than winners. So we're going to try to unpick who those losers and winners are. We actually have two winners joining us. Uh, we have Katarina Principi and Anton Jaeger. You'll have heard them on previous episodes. Uh, Katarina was with us in London when we did our Europe After Brexit event. She's spoken to us previously about Portugal. Anton was on an episode at the very end of last year on populism. Welcome to your both, Katarina and Anton. How are you guys doing?
1: Well... Um I'm not sure. I'm actually not not very happy about what's going on. Uh, even if we, are, we are, I'm one of the, what you call the winner. But anyway,
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. Anton, yeah,
2: I'm I'm doing fine. I think there's a nice phrase in German, which is something I'm feeling hopeless but not dramatic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> <so> <laughs> I d- think, just yeah, merely from, glum. <laughs> yeah, I merely mean, glum. Like I think there are enough reasons for melancholy, but at the same time, it's not cataclysmic enough to actually move into a state of heightened awareness in that way so yeah it's a weird form of stasis i think
0: okay weird form of stasis well there's actually a lot of a lot of change to to discuss um we're going to do this thematically rather than country by country we're not going to discuss the results in every european election uh in every national election but we are going to try to tease out some bigger themes and i want to start with uh something that anton tweeted uh that this confirms that the 20th century is now over that's a really big bold claim but I think Anton meant it, and he can explain a little bit more, that he meant it in reference to the fact that the two big parties, the two big political forces that fought over the future of Europe over the post-war period, the Social Democrats and the Conservatives or Christian Democrats, fell below 50% for the first time. So to get us started, Anton, do you want to elaborate on on this development?
2: Yeah, I think it's like a small numerical fact, but I think it speaks to quite a momentous political shift. And I I don't want to say it's very sudden. I mean, it's been coming for a long time. But still, the fact that it's finally happened and not maybe in a a spectacular way really, I think, denotes that we've really left the 20th century, as I said. So it shows just that classical party democracy is dead. Um, It's not, uh, how shall I put it, it's zombified. So it still has some kind of residual presence in politics. But it's really not the sort of kingmaker or key player anymore. And maybe I was reading too much of the Belgian elections into the European result, but in Belgium, this process is very, very striking. You now have the Christian Democrats in Flanders, for example, the so-called CDNV, who achieved a mere 13 percent, if I'm correct, and... It's, yeah, it's an astonishingly low turnout for a party that was once uh, called the sort of state party. I mean, in the sense that they basically mm. owned the state, they possessed the state. The post-war period uh, in Flanders, the Belgian state was often called the cvp state, as they said. it. And we now have a party that's almost close to, like, you yeah, have the first decentile, basically. And I think if you add up all of the socialist votes in Belgium, all of the Christian democratic votes, and all the liberal votes, you barely get to 45%. And looking back comparatively, this is really unique. And I think you can still see a reflection of this pattern also in the European level. So I think this idea that the 20th century is over is definitely warranted.
0: Mm. And you can see this played out in other European countries as well. Uh, you can see it played out in Germany where the both uh, the CDU, CSU uh, and the uh, SPD, both saw significant drops uh, in in the election, especially the SPD. Uh, you also, I mean, Italy's a whole other case, and we're going to come on to that. Um, but I think France maybe is a good place to start because it maybe captures the essence of a lot of what is going on elsewhere in Europe. So there you have Macron's uh, party, which is his Renaissance grouping, is allied to the liberals in Europe, which probably are the biggest, at least in terms of headlines, the biggest gainers uh, in the European parliamentary election. And they faced off against the, the sovereignist nationalist far right in the, in the guise of Marie Le Pen. Um, and that maybe captures the way that politics is seen today between kind of centrist pro-market liberals and their far right challengers, uh, question mark on that. Um, and then you also have the phenomenon of the gilet jaune, probably Europe's only dynamic social movement. Uh, Which sees no political representation. So I think, do you agree with me, I guess, and maybe Katarina can come on to this, uh, that maybe France expresses best the kind of pan-European dynamic of liberal pro-market centrist versus nationalist populist right uh, and a whole lot of disgruntlement, which otherwise isn't captured by the political system.
1: Um, Well, just let me go just back to the first uh, comment uh, that Anton made. Um, I think it's interesting what he said about the 20th century being definitely over. But I I have a question back in a way, which is um, I'm not certain whether European elections are the best elections to understand this dynamics. I mean, do they actually reflect what is happening? at the level of national uh, governments and elections, because I think we have different tendencies. Uh, If we look at, for example, uh, Spain or Portugal even, um, it's not fair to say that um, uh, social democracy or the traditional social democracy is is over. On the contrary, they have been revitalized, even with the help of the left in in Mm. many ways. So uh, I I think that's... uh, Although I think it's 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 interesting to see what is happening at the European level, I'm I'm not sure if we can like punch above the weights and read too much into European elections. Although I agree that it gives a, a, as a sort of, of sense of the dynamic. And another thing is, um, I I think we in many ways we're even worse than uh, than. Uh, what we had in a way during the 20th century, because if we look at the results uh, European wide, at the European wide level, uh, what we see is that actually, there is no more social democracy left. Uh, Because on the one hand, the traditional parties of social democracy did not only like lose a lot of MEPs, but they are not social democratic parties anymore. And at the same time, the smallest group of the left, which encapsulates a lot of different political tendencies within the left as well, um, is, is residual at the moment. So, um, so I think in, in a way we are we're worse than we were uh, in that sense. If we can read uh, something into that, uh, considering France, um, well, I mean, I think what we can see in France is clearly. Uh, um, um, I mean, it's it's um, how do you say this a crystallization of a certain dynamic. I'm not sure if it encapsulates a whole European dynamic um, because again, if we look at Italy or Portugal, it doesn't exactly feel the same way. Um, no, uh, Spain or Portugal, sorry, not Italy. Uh, even Greece in in some other way. So or Belgium or etc. Um, but at the same time, it does reflect, I think, something that is very clear all over Europe, which is that the left is unable to um build upon big moments of resistance because we do have a huge social movement in france but that does not translate into any stable structured uh, left-wing critical uh position yeah um and at the same time i believe that what this european election showed in general and i think france is also a good example to show this is that the um the left-wing EU criticism uh, has completely lost its terrain. So the the, the far right or the right um, has taken over the EU criticism and the left is actually um, feeding upon the narrative of... Uh, European integration of some sort uh, reform and remain blah. yeah so and i think this this european elections clearly show this that for example in portugal you can see this like uh, very clearly said so the only party on the left the, the communist party that maintained uh, a structured critical position to the eu lost one mep for example and i mean it's just a small example but it still shows this yeah. so um yeah, so I think France encapsulates these two dynamics in a way, but I'm not sure it encapsulates the whole of the European dynamics. No, was-
0: yeah, no, no, that's right. I mean, I think there are important exceptions and, and the Iberian case is, is one important one. I mean, Spain saw the largest increase in turnout. And, in fact, I wanted to come on to Turnout in a little bit, um, but just to foreshadow that, I mean, Turnout as a whole breached 50% for the first time in a very long time. So that's maybe a, a significant thing to discuss in its own right. Uh, the the story that Anton kind of brought up, which is, I mean, the end of the 20th century, the end of this social democracy versus Christian democracy— um, that is something which is very clearly expressed in the UK. But, of course, that's driven by both Labour and Tories' own prevarication over Brexit. We'll come on to that as well. Um, but, you know, in, in France, the, the Gaullists and socialists performed very, very badly, both in single figures. Uh, in Germany, as I already mentioned, uh, the centre-left and centre-right performed poorly. Um, and the main narrative of the populist surge, lots of people have been claiming that this is was abated. I'm not sure that's the case, uh, Anton. As as the populism expert, uh, what's your take on you know whether populism succeeded or failed or otherwise in in these elections?
2: Well, <clears throat> to put it in a really sort of cowardly way, I think it did a bit of both in that sense. So, firstly, I, I completely agree with Katarina that what you used to get and what I think you still get in European elections is a very selective sociological slice of the population that actually goes out to vote, and. European politics is Europeanizing. I think these were the first truly European elections. While before even like in 2014, for example, a lot of these European elections were mainly cast in a national setting and were fought over national issues. While now it was about intrinsically European issues such as immigration Mm. or security concerns. So, European politics is Europeanizing, but not necessarily in the prettiest way, and definitely not always positively so for liberals. Well, at the same time, what I think is happening on the populism front, I think think France offers like a distant mirror of a lot of other evolutions in adjacent countries, basically. Because there you have the complete breakdown of the classical party system. You have the restructuring of the complete political landscape around this kind of technocratic versus populist uh, camp. And at the same time, you can see that all these classical parties such as the PS are just simply disappearing. And it's still crazy for a party that determined mm-hmm. the French political landscape for 40 years that they're no longer around. And they're yeah. just basically completely irrelevant and on force. What you saw with like the populist surge, and this is the reason a lot of Europeanists have been have been celebrating these elections because they show that has halted. But I think they suffer from what I, I don't want to call it. Stockholm syndrome is not the right word, but. They've become really bad at managing expectations in the sense that since what we've seen in the last couple of elections is a sort of accelerated or exponential rise of populists every election, the presumption was that they only win if they grow every time. So the only idea is that uh, they needed triumphs and victories. What you now see is that they've had a victory without a triumph. Which is mainly translated into a sort of consolidation. Like they've managed yeah. to maintain their position in France. Um, they've also managed to do that in parts of Germany. And I don't think that's reassuring for the European Union at all. It just shows that they're able to cling on to a, a base.
0: Yeah, yeah I totally. It,
1: I totally agree with the point on consolidation. By the way, just just as a comment. Yes.
0: <laughs> no, absolutely. I think in and maybe that plays out most clearly in Italy, where the where I mean, the, you know, it actually probably. Most impacts on our national sense in terms of the balance of power between Lega and Five Star, where Lega won, I think, something like 34 percent of the vote, and it is a serious moral victory for Salvini against the Five Star within the the Italian government. And there, somewhere, where again the the centre left suffers, and there is no real radical left presence at all in any electoral sense. Um, do you have any comment on uh, on on Italy? I mean, I think here is it's another case where, yeah, maybe it's a it's a kind of It's the first time that politics has been Europeanized in an electoral sense, as Anton said. Neither Salvini, nor for that matter, Le Pen, Pen is particularly serious about actually withdrawing their countries from the EU. The EU just serves as a sort of of, uh, external enemy, which they can use for rhetorical purposes, than anything actually uh, in terms of a serious program of withdrawing their countries from the Eurozone or the EU. Do you agree with that?
1: well i can just say something about maybe about the the idea of politics being europeanized um and i think it is um <laughs> it is both uh, true and not i mean because i, I think in a way it is it, it is very much true for um people who vote um on the questions of migration circulation and so on so who vote out of um of uh, fear slash uh, scapegoat types of politics. But at the same time, uh, I'm not fully, I, I'm not sure if you can fully say this. Like there was, a, for example, there was a poll, and I know this is Portugal, again, small, small country, periphery of the periphery and so on. But um, there was a poll that was done uh, uh, one one month before the election, so on the 26th of April. And it's interesting to see that um Um, more than 50% of the people who said they were going to vote, um, said that they were going to vote based on national questions and not on European questions. And, but then again, the European questions that people were going to vote about, uh, were what they understood as European was, uh, the questions of migration and circulation. So uh, on the, I think, um, This is why also I say that in a way we have lost this, uh, the left has lost the momentum that was created in 2013, 14, 15, etc., mainly because of Greece, that we were able to actually debate on the European question from a left-wing perspective that had to do with actually structures and architectures. Um, And today the European question is just seen as this... um, ghost and fear of um, migrants and immigration and low wages and so on, um, instead of people actually voting for a sort of um, more sovereign types of control of the economy, which I think right. is interesting because it does Europeanize in a way, but for the wrong reasons and the interesting yeah. reasons why it should be Europeanized are gone from the political debate.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, uh, and and I think, and I think Italy is that. I mean, in a way, I think Italy yeah, is totally that as well
2: <laughs> well, can i can I just chime in on that one? because I, I absolutely agree that we we must not forget the European Parliament is like a notoriously weak body within this whole mm-hmm. European ecology. Mm-hmm. Like it is i forgot to put that in my introduction
0: system. that like the proviso that none of this actually materially matters <laughs> yeah no,
2: no <laughs> i think yeah i think we need to be quite cynical about this like the european parliament yeah. has no real legislative or constitutional power it's mainly sort of stamping body for what happens in the council or in the commission yeah and it is it's a its elections are powerful in a sort of expressive sense because you it allows you to read certain moods um they have a higher symbolic value but i don't think they actually count materially as you say and following this i think the underperformance of a lot of left populists, like even someone like Mélenchon, who got a miserable Mm -hmm. result of like 6.9% or something, also really shows, as you say, uh, Katarina, that, yeah, the left has really won the culture war on Europe. So it's lost the war of imagery in the sense that on policy, it's always vacillated and it was always unclear what its plan vis-à-vis the EU was. At the same time, it has not been able to actually bind these new young middle classes to it because those middle classes just culturally remain too attached to an ideal of a unified Europe, regardless of what that Europe looks like in a concrete institutional setting. And what most left populists have ended up doing, like Podemos in Spain, and I get a sense that maybe even the same story holds for Mélenchon, Show, is that they've acted as a sort of tributary, either for the rekindling of old-style social democratic politics, or they've just, um, yeah, turned more people into the right-wing Eurosceptic camp, because they themselves were not content yep. enough to actually spell out an explicit position. And I'm not sure we can actually put all of the blame for this process on, on the populists themselves. I think there are a lot of structural factors at play here that are beyond their control. But at the same time, it's very clear that the so-called populist moment is fading. And I think the window of opportunity, as you say, opened up by 2013 now looks, yeah, looks like miserably closed, I think. No, uh, I
1: was just wondering if... if I, because I thought what Anton was saying is really interesting uh, as a sort of like a leap to the Brexit debate.
0: Yeah, and I want to come on to that, and I also want to come on to okay, okay. Uh, the, the question of the missed opportunity for the left, but I wanted to pick up on something that Anton said, because it actually works as a nice segue to the next point, uh, which is the surge of the Greens, the Green Wave, uh, one of the big sort of headline winners. if You, you know, you read the, the sort of the papers looking at the, the European context. That's what's often highlighted, and that seems to be precisely the sort of young, urban, middle-class culturally liberal types uh, who have generally been pro-EU and who might have previously voted for the Social Democrats, uh, now voting for the Greens. This seems to be clear in Germany, but there's also another case that in in Germany, many uh, conservative voters, many CDU voters voted for the Greens as well. So any takes on what exactly is behind this green surge? I mean, they seem to be the standard bearers of pro-EU left liberalism, I guess. Is that correct? And uh, is there any any particular content um, associated with that vote which ties to actual environmentalist politics?
2: Well, and just to put it quite bluntly, I think we underestimate that the Greens have always thrived in what you could call a postmodern environment, like they're yeah. essentially postmodern movement, so I don't think it's surprising they, they continue to perform well. I think the first attraction is, as you say, just cultural in... Uh, Germany, it's very clear that a lot of young voters were attracted to Greens precisely because of uh, these uh, student marches for the climate. Um, This didn't happen in Belgium, but it's very clear that pattern replicated itself uh, across Europe as well. And at the same time, I also don't Think we have? Yeah, we can't really forget that the Greens have always had a mi- good middle class base. and yeah. um, it's always been a relatively middle class movement. Uh, in Germany, it's very clear that um, it's given up on its left wing leanings a long time ago, since it went into the so-called grosser Koalition with yeah. with the, with the SPD. And yeah, what 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 you're seeing now, I think, is that they've they've become the warriors in a sort of pro-European culture war, and they're yeah. basically reaping the fruits of that now in that way.
0: Well, it was interesting to read uh, actually, Bhaskar Sarkar, uh, the editor of Jacobin. I think speaking more to a North American audience, saying that hey, guys, you know, this isn't uh, this isn't like even the U.S. Green Party. These are basically you know European European left neoliberals. And those aren't the words that he used, but uh, clarifying that for for a North American audience, and indeed maybe worth clarifying for for our own North American audience here, that uh, that these that these Greens have very little actual left wing content to them. It's mainly in a cultural sense that that's expressed. And maybe, is it right, would you agree that the, the Greens are the party of left neoliberals in Europe now?
2: I think that's a bit strong, but I think, like, strategically, they definitely uh, will feel comfortable assenting to a certain neoliberal, neoliberal consensus. I think that's beyond doubt.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I just, I'm about Germany specifically, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure. I haven't read this anyway, but I was thinking about it, like... Um, I mean, on the one hand, I think it is probably true that since the the, the very strong degrowth haha, of the SPD, um, the, <laughs> the, um, the, 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 there is probably a lot of people voting for the Greens as well because they won't vote for the left because the Green is the Green, especially in Germany, very clearly in Germany, are not a left wing party for a very long time. At the same time, I wonder if there is sort of as well as if there are CDU voters, that uh, traditional CDU voters that voted for the Greens, whether there is actually a sort of like, w- w- which then tenden- uh, tendentially happens in European elections, that's why I'm saying this, whether it's not some sort of critique, oppositional vote. So I think it would be interesting to see then what are actually the results of the Green Party in the next national elections in Germany and whether they actually play out as well, because European elections tend to be sort of this moment where people vote for their grievances about the parties that they actually will vote again for in national elections. So I'm very uncertain about this. But I also think it's interesting... Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I also think that what Anton was mentioning, I totally agree that there's this new moment with all the, the climate marches and the climate strikes. And I think it's and I mean, I, this doesn't explain everything. But um, in Portugal, for example, the the, the party for animals in nature just elected for the first time an MEP. And um i am not the 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 like the analysis of voting has not has yet to be done but uh, there's also a particular question that we have like the so called millennials voting for the first time in this european elections so there's a new generation of people that are p- young people who have been active in the climate marches and so on and so forth, and have a more acute and accurate sense of climate justice, that voted for the first time in these elections. And I have no idea if this actually does play out in terms of any like um, concrete uh, difference. But in Portugal, I think it will probably be the case that we will see that a lot of this young voters new voters voted for this green party uh, precisely because of their very practical involvement in uh, uh, climate and environmental issues and i don't know if we can totally downplay also this new thing uh, but it, I think, in a way, it's too soon to, to say something about it.
0: Well, it's interesting to recall that the first real green wave, actually, was in the European elections of 1989, which, I mean, if maybe this is a step too far, but if you want to tie any green surge to... Uh, as Anton called it, postmodern politics, or, you know, certainly post-materialist politics, that really maybe was the moment in sort of 1989, um, the, the kind of birth of post-history right then. So I, I don't know if you agree with that or not, but there's, I wanted to pick up on another point, which uh, will lead us on to our next kind of heading here, which is that the European elections serve as a bit of a freebie, as a way to give the party that you normally vote for a bloody nose. And the one place where this might not be the case, and where the bloody nose might actually signal a deeper transformation, is in the UK, um, where the European elections probably mattered the least. In one sense, in the in the sense that, well, the, those MEPs are meant to be abolished in in short order. Uh, the UK is meant to leave the European Union at on the 31st of October, um, but where the votes for most of the parties other than Labour and Conservative were motivated precisely because of the Brexit question, either because they wanted to punish the party they usually vote for, Labour or Conservative, uh, for their handling of Brexit, uh, or because they actually wanted to positively endorse a party for their position on Brexit, be that to leave in the guise of the Brexit party or remain in the guise of uh, predominantly the SNP in Scotland and the Liberal Democrats uh, in the rest of the country. Um, But there's a weird thing that's happened in the UK, if we can talk about the UK just briefly, which is that in the response to it, basically everyone's trying to claim a victory for themselves, which just shows that the sort of leave versus remain culture war uh, carries on unimpeded and maybe is even accelerating. Uh, Everybody tries to tally up the results for the Brexit Party plus whoever else, and show that rem- that Leave actually won, and other people are going well. Actually, you put uh, Labour in the Remain camp, and then actually you see that the Remain vote was larger than the Leave vote. Uh, this is in the context of a turnout of something like uh, in the 30% in the 30 percentiles there. So, um, I guess I wanted to ask again in reference to the end of the 20th century question and the end of the face-off between Labour and Conservative as the two main parties. Uh, with the Brexit party breakthrough and the vote of Remainers going to other smaller parties, who's going to suffer more from this, Labour or Conservative? Uh, maybe Anton, as you're in the UK, you want to proffer some opinions on this.
2: Um, I know maybe some other people on the podcast will not agree with this, but I think I want to mount like <laughs> a very cautious defense of yeah Labour's behavior around this election because I think really in the long term it will it will hollow out the conservatives. I mean it depends if they actually elect a staunch the staunch pro Brexiteer next leadership election, this might change. But I actually think that Labour or at least the Labour leadership um did something quite I'd say rational in these European elections because they are actually, and we need to remind ourselves, of this completely pointless elections. Like they, were, they weren't they were supposed to happen and they're a purely symbolic, as you say, sort of cultural indicator of, of, of the mood in the country. And even turnout wasn't fantastic. There's a like clear sense of dissatisfaction among a lot of voters. And it has become a sort of proxy referendum on when and how uh, the process of leaving or remaining the European is supposed to happen. I think what Labour basically tried to do is keep together a very precarious coalition for the next general election make sure that it doesn't antagonize both of those camps which are like metropolitan remainers and then most of the north northern working class leavers and then just wait out until that general election actually arrives and i think the real worry or the sort of real danger here lies for the tories who i think have completely um, yeah taken a high risk gamble by letting a remainder negotiate the actual Brexit process. And it's now coming back to haunt them, where you have the perfect expression of a sort of political void, which is the Brexit party, which is actually a sort of non-party. It's a personal vehicle concocted by someone like Farage in a very short amount of time. And it's been a highly, dare I say, like symbolic election. So I don't think we need to attach too many importance to it, except for, again, as an indicator of, uh, as I say, a sort of postmodern mood in that way.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably right. I mean, I you know, I although I don't agree personally with Corbyn's stance, and I would have liked to have seen him be much more forthrightly uh, pro Brexit and actually chart a course there, I totally accept that there's a structural limitation to 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 where he stands in terms of actually being able to seize the mantle one way or the other, um, because he's beholden to his Labour Party mainly Remain Labour Party members, uh, and also having to satisfy the wishes of mainly Leave voting constituents. So. I agree that the Conservatives might actually suffer more immediately, and and looking at some polling that I'd seen, it shows that a lot of the former Tories who voted Brexit intend to continue to do so until Brexit's seen through. Um, My personal take is no matter who the Conservatives choose as leader, especially if it's Boris Johnson who's the most disgusting opportunist. will also fold on the Brexit question and Brexit will continue to eat up conservative prime ministers. um, And then we'll see if it does the same to an eventual Labour prime minister. Um, Just on the question of whether all this matters, how symbolic is this? It is interesting, I think. It is noteworthy that turnout's up. So I did want to return to this question. Um, Maybe, Katarina, if you have a comment on this. Turnout in the first European parliamentary election in 1979 was 62%. Not great. It steadily declined uh, year-on-year, election-on-election, until 2014, it reached 42%. Now it's back up past 50%. I think 50.9% was the final turnout numbers. Um, And 20%, 20 countries actually saw an increase, with nine of them in double digits. That's kind of significant. And you could say at least it's some return to politics on the continent or not. Katarina.
1: Uh, well, that, I think that's what we were debating a little bit, is that why why are people voting for the European elections? I think Anton mentioned this, uh, me as well. I mean, it depends on... Uh, what exactly people understand is uh, European politics, right? So if people are voting out of fear and scapegoating of migrants, then I'm not sure whether uh, a bigger turnout is uh, directly a, a positive thing. But um, I'm also not unsure about something, which, which I don't know, and it's a, it's a debate right now in Portugal because the, the, the turnout, um, well, actually, in terms of numbers, more people voted, um, but the turnout is lower because there was a brightening of the universe of people who could vote for the european elections mm-hmm. so i'm not i'm not sure whether this is the case for all other countries so i think we have to be careful about this because actually uh, in terms of uh, uh, so you, you know what i mean like the turnout was uh, lower here although more people voted because the universe is bigger yeah. so i think we have to be a little bit careful but well portugal anyway, was very
0: low in any case right it was like 30 odd percent
1: yeah, Portugal is very low, uh, uh, but but it's been it, it's it's a common thing. So I am an, again, but but the main question is what I was saying before is whether actually wh- why are people voting for the European elections and whether this or whether we can see that you know I don't think we can associate turnout uh, directly with the positive thing. I think it's great that people participate and vote. That's not what I mean, but at the same time, people are voting because. They have very misunderstood ideas about migration um uh, and the left is nowhere to be seen then that's not directly a positive outcome
0: mm. so let's yeah go ahead anton
2: no, um the only thing I wanted to add is that um when looking at the actual numbers, there has been a slight yeah restoration of these previous polling numbers, but at the same time, the turnout is still not very impressive like it, it's still at a very low point and I think what it what it mainly indicates is also, um, yeah. I mean, it indicates just that Europeans have a very very low standard of what counts as impressive turnout. And we mustn't forget these B- European elections are being held in a context of existential crisis for the EU. So, like a constituent, uh, like a former member is leaving, and obviously this would translate in increased turnout because it creates a sort of emergency atmosphere. But even in the sense of an emergency atmosphere, a lot of these European elections are now just symbolic votes on whether the EU should exist or whether it should not exist it's not even a vote on what should actually happen on a European level it's just a vote on should this body exist or should it not exist I don't think that's like a comforting conclusion at all for for, for pro-EU people I mean participation is up but I think it's up because the sense of crisis is just much higher
0: yeah and it probably and uh, there's a maybe a further polarization around pro and anti-EU lines um, which leads to that sense of of, of urgency, but I think that's right to put it in context that that turnout is still very low despite the situation in which the continent as a whole and the EU finds itself. I wanted to round well, this out. Well,
1: can I? Can I add? Go ahead. Sorry, I just what I feel is that, um, and, and Brexit is a very good, or the Brexit debacle is a, it is a very good uh, example of this. Um, is that it, it? It doesn't really matter, like what you like. The, I think um the feeling that people have is that you can't go against this if so if if people in the u k cannot negotiate with european institutions um the sort of feeling of uh this elections don't really matter because no matter what we say there will always be a sort of top down uh, anti democratic politics um I think that's a very generalized feeling that I think brexit helped to or the brexit uh, uh, conundrum helped to um, enrich uh, or to uh, give uh, space yeah, give expression to, to that, yeah yeah because I think also this this is the the turnout and the question of turnout on the one hand, okay, more people voted in a moment of crisis. So we would expect eventually that many more people voted to try to decide upon the future. but at the same time, what people feel is that, it doesn't matter what they vote, because this doesn't play any role. And I think this feeling of disempowerment uh, concerning EU institutions is a very important reason why people just don't vote. And and I I think we can't forget about this.
0: I think that's I'm glad you made that point. Um, And in terms of giving voice to that sense of disempowerment, unfortunately, the populist left seems not to be able to do so. Uh, you guys have already touched on this, but maybe to round this out, we could speak about where the the radical left is in Europe. Um, maybe we turn to Belgium first. It's a country we don't hear a lot about very often. So maybe Anton, fill us in what happened in the Belgian elections.
2: Um, it's extremely chaotic. And I think um, we've seen some pretty messy elections in Belgium before, not in the sense of the process was messy, but just the, the turnout is very, very difficult to make sense of. But this, I think, really tops the bill in that sense. So what you have saw is basically that in the north, in Flanders, in the regional elections, um, you had an expected win for the Flemish nationalists who work in the current government, but actually they were completely overtaken by a far-right party, which they themselves prided themselves on as having devoured it and completely neutralized it at force, but now it's back with a vengeance, and they're close to 20% uh, on a national level. The Flemish nationalists, Flemish nationalists sorry, are still the biggest force in the federal, in the national uh, parliament, but they're really, really uh, feeling the breath of this uh, right-wing, uh, radical right party called the Vlaams Belang in their neck. And I think it, it shows, because it's a sort of classical story of uh, mainstream conservatives, in this case, those Flemish nationalists, moving to right to appease their more radical voters, which they took in to the tent in 2013, and consistently playing up this kind of rhetoric um, dog whistling to publics you wouldn't expect him to actually dog whistle to in the end it completely backfired on them and mm-hmm. they've actually caused the return of the beast in that sense which which is and a still, bit of
0: a general phenomenon as well i mean it happens across many different countries when the center-right tries to ape the the populist right and it tends to get eaten up by that and actually not improve its polling performance
2: yeah absolutely i think it's very similar to the, the cdu experience in germany where i think a lot of sort of more left-liberal CDU voters just flocked to the Greens and people who wanted the original didn't care about the replica, so they stayed with the AfD. No, it's just like classical party democracies in terminal decline also in Belgium in that sense.
0: But there seems to be a positive result for the left in Wallonia. Is that right?
2: Yes, and even a positive result for the uh, left, even in Flanders, where it was deemed like culturally impossible for the radical left ever to elect someone in Parliament. Actually, it's the first time in 60 years that the Flemish Parliament has had a communist uh, MP. So that's quite remarkable. At the same time, if you look at the sociological or the sort of electoral breakdown, the actual portion of people voting for the left uh, has not changed. Uh, There's still only a very minor block of 30 percent um, that actually votes for the left. What has changed, however, is that the makeup of that bloc has changed a bit and it's become more radical and you now have certain representatives of a far more militant left that are actually in the Belgian and in the Flemish parliaments. And I think the success of the so-called PTB and P van der A, PTB is the French wing, P van der A is the Flemish wing, can also be explained and they have a strong base within the union movement. So it actually explains the success of that kind of left populism in Belgium is that it very much abjures this kind of media-centric, purely digital approach to populism, uh, parties such as Podemos and even Mélenchon's France Soumise tried to use, which was very much a top-down, um, yeah, almost disorganized form of populism, which was very leader-centric. And although they have some charismatic fitters at the top of the party, they've really prided themselves on having a very strong basis within Belgium's quite yeah, still strong union movement. And I think this shows that if you actually manage to build a sort of stronger social base, this will in the end also translate into some kind of stronger electoral performance. Um, They're the only left populists that haven't lost out actually on a European level. So I think it's a cautionary tale for these other forces.
0: Thanks, it's very worthwhile highlighting actually. Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, As a way of just putting a, a bow on this, I guess, Katerina you've already mentioned you've already argued that it seems that the radical left has mi- or the you know the new populist left if you prefer has missed a window of opportunity uh, that was open from you know maybe 2013 to 2017 or so and that that has now closed that and and would you I guess to put this as a question would you put that down to the failure of these parties and movements to actually give expression to the frust- to the and to the frustrations of democracy that many people feel that basically voting doesn't matter. Um, and do you think that that failure is tied to a failure to give expression to an anti-EU position? Um,
1: just, just one interesting thing, because some of the parties that we, um, we, we considered the parties on, of left populism in Europe were actually the parties as well that formed a couple of years ago the so-called Plan B, Right. So the, this uh, uh, groupment of, regroupment of parties and figures on the left that wanted to create a more eurocritical stance. Um, and clearly uh, that not only the plan B um, expression and situation is gone uh, and and lost track, but also uh, they 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 weren't able to actually fulfill this idea of building up a concrete plan, and and I think this 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 turnout for the left is um, is reflecting is is a consequence of a very wobbly position that overall uh, the European left has had on the EU and the eurozone. Um, because we can, we can still see throughout Europe parties that have very different positions on on this question, and have not been able to actually come up with a sort of um, strategic um, understanding of how to deal with with what I really think uh, is probably the central question uh, for the left today. So. Um, Yes, I, I believe that uh, this space is is gone now because uh, because for for the bad and the worse and all moments of crisis and and polarization are not and even moments of capitulation of left parties like in Greece are not only moments of closure of opportunities they also open opportunities and the opportunities that the Greek situation has opened which was the capacity of being more outspoken, uh, critically critical about the EU and the eurozone, and to have a stronger popular support upon uh, about these issues. Um, is now gone. And I think it's gone, and it's our own fault, because we were not, we never actually dever- developed a coherent um, political strategy, a way to politicize the rupture, uh, and because because we are scared of this shift in, in, a, in a contextual, because the context has changed, and so because we are afraid of this change in the context, we weren't um, brave enough to actually uh, keep on a clear line that a lot of the left-wing parties throughout Europe developed a bit further in from 2013 to 2017, as you said. And so this space is completely gone. So basically now we are feeding into the idea that uh, it is possible uh, to overcome austerity and crisis within the European framework, which I think is totally impossible. And at the same time, uh we left the, the the EU criticism, which is even if the right wing gives it wrong answers, a very understandable and a very serious feeling, we left it to the far right. And I think we completely lost this moment. And I'm I'm very, very uh um I don't know how to say this, skeptical about or or um Afraid about how long it will take us to uh, be able to have this sort of moment again. Yeah,
0: I, I, I don't want to Tem- end
1: on a bad note, but, but but I think this is a very, I mean, this is really uh, a serious situation.
2: I think like the most tragic comical expression of what you've been describing is the fact that Varoufakis didn't get elected.
1: <laughs> yeah, think- but but then but DM got someone elected in Greece.
2: Okay. Yeah. That, also interesting. That, that yeah, so he ran be- in
1: Germany, but then he didn't get elected in Greece, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a, or someone else got elected in Greece, which is also an interesting phenomenon.
2: Yeah, but I think, like, the point you were making also is that I think the left fails to realize that this kind of agnosticism on the European question, where you basically never clearly spell out your position institutionally, but rhetorically you may maintain a sort of critical stance, but you would never actually, yeah. Like Corbyn, you would never actually explicitly say what your institutional plans were, and I think the left underestimates that this agnosticism works on the right, just because the right's institutional plans are way less ambitious than the left's. So and someone it like has
1: to be—they build on scapegoat ideas, so they yeah, don't have. Yeah, Yeah.
2: okay, sorry. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So Salvini or Le Pen can actually vacillate on this question yeah. because what they want to do is actually not that big an overhaul of the cons- current institutional setting. Even something like stringent immigration controls is something that's already being done within a European yeah. setting, and it can be intensified. You don't need to like radically alter the whole European superstructure to actually do that. Well, what the left wants to do is actually yeah institutionally way more ambitious and therefore agnosticism is just seen as yeah very cowardly in a sense because it's very clear that what the left wants to do is go beyond these mere european strictures and i think the left made a mistake thinking that just because the right maintained this kind of agnostic position they could maintain it as well and that had, has backfired massively as mm-hmm. we see now
0: mm-hmm. i think that's absolutely right and uh yeah i might re what uh, labor has pursued over the past year of constructive ambiguity—it's purely destructive yeah. ambiguity, uh, as has shown in Labour's results now, and and pro- possibly for uh, many left parties across Europe as well. All right, that's a really sad note to leave it on. Um, but I think that's where <laughs> we will. All right, thanks, guys. Thank you.
1: Um, Thank you. Maybe we will have some better news uh, sometime soon, but let's see. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's let's let's
0: make let's make a plan to, to that the next time we speak, we have better news to tell each other.
2: See you on the the barricades, I say. Exactly. 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 All right,
0: thanks, guys. (laughs)